Okay, Zen and self-cultivation. Um, last week, on Thursday, I spoke of how a monk asked Guishan if somebody if, who has attained enlightenment still needed to continue with self-cultivation. And Guishan said, through meditation, a student may attain thoughtless thought, become suddenly enlightened and realize his original nature. But there are still delusions that have been accumulated over new, numberless kalpas and cannot be purified in a single moment. Therefore, she should be taught how to eliminate the karmic tendencies and mental habits. There is no other way of cultivation. Here is another koan story that relates to Guishan. Chang Jing Da An's White Ox. Chang Jing Da An said, I lived with Guishan more than 30 years. I ate Guishan's food. I shat Guishan's shit. But I did not study Guishan's Zen. All I did was look after an ox. If he got off the road, I dragged him back. If he trampled the grain in others' fields, I trained him by flogging him with a whip. For a long time, how pitiful he was, at the mercy of everyone's words. Now he has changed into the white ox on the bare ground and always stays in front of my face. All day long, he clearly reveals himself. Even if I chase him, he doesn't go away. Zhang Jing Da An was a Dharma heir of Bai Zhang, Dharma brother of Guishan, and he was invited to become the abbot on Mount Gui when Guishan died. Exploring him further after I'd come across this story, I found that it was his teacher, Bai Zhang himself, who had introduced him to the ox. When Da An met Bai Zhang, he bowed and asked, This student seeks to know Buddha. How can I do so? Bai Zhang said, It's like riding the ox looking for the ox. Da An said, After finding it, then what? Bai Zhang said, It's like riding the ox and arriving home. Da An then asked, how does one ultimately uphold and sustain this? Bai Jiang said, It's like an ox herd who, grasping his staff, watches the ox so that he doesn't transgress by eating other people's sprouts and grain. Upon receiving this instruction, Jiang Jing sought nothing further. No doubt, Many of you will be familiar with some version of the ten ox herding pictures. These pictures actually post-date all this talk of oxen in relation to Zen practice by Bai Zhang and his Dharma heirs by a few hundred years. However, the ox itself has played a significant role, had, had played a significant role in Taoist and Indian iconography for centuries. And um, as I was preparing and thinking about this talk, I serendipitously stumbled upon a version by 
Tu Ming uh, of the Ox Herding Pictures with translations by Red Pine. I have in brackets that I will pass this around. COVID brain means that it's either in that other room <laughs> or it's in, <laughs> or it's in um, West Perth, but I will try and remember to bring it so that I can show it to you. <laughs> um, there are different descriptions of the ox herding pictures, um, but they vary a little, and they vary a little. But in this koan, we can see that well before the ox herding pictures were first drawn, parallels were being made in Zen contexts between Zen practice and taming oxen. In fact, Red Pine points out that the ox herding metaphor dates back to the time of Buddha's Nirvana, when he told his monks, Monks, once you're able to keep the precepts, you should prevent your five senses from indulging in the five, sense, in the five desires. Be like the herd boy with his staff, with his staff in hand, who watches over his ox and keeps it from running, running through grain fields. That's from the Testament Sutra. What Chang Jing meant by the white ox is not explained or defined. But when you find it, you will know. However, I think we are all familiar with our personal mud-coloured ox that we struggle to catch, that won't stop wandering off and doing things we think she shouldn't. Yet self-cultivation is really something we traditionally don't emphasise or talk about in Zen. In my early training, which was, I think, pretty typical of Japanese monastic training in many ways, there was little discussion of how we changed, perhaps becoming kinder, more generous, less angry, even though Yamada Roshi had said that the purpose of Zen was the perfection of character. It was sort of more or less implied that it would just happen naturally. And so I think quite a lot of us were shocked, not only by esteemed teachers in the West being revealed as lecherous predators, but by our own continuing struggles with jealousy or anger, desire or despair. Even if we knew in theory, or because we had gained a glimpse of the ox, that the separate self is an illusion. The habit of thinking that we are a personal separate self is very strong. We learn early on as children to see ourselves as separate. And this sense is particularly encouraged through our modern consumer culture. Within Buddhism, there's a well-documented tradition that addresses in some detail the habits of mind that distract us and a rich array of practices to help us become aware of our unhelpful tendencies. Some of these, like our tendency to pick and choose on the basis of what we like or dislike, have made their way into our sutras. The great way is not difficult for those who do not pick and choose, for example. It's not wrong, of course, to experience a feeling of like, dislike, or indifference. It just happens. We're not in control of it. 
but it's very instructive to notice it because it's the start of the mind road that will lead your ox astray very quickly. Sitting in Zazen too, our restless minds will hitch a long ride on something that just starts off as a slight feeling of curiosity or discomfort but can turn into a 20-minute rehashing over an old painful story or fantasizing a bright future. This mindful attention to our thoughts can be helpful, but it is not our Zen practice. The point is not to explore in minute detail our habits of mind as, as our regular practice. The point is to notice when our thoughts have strayed, preferably even before they have strayed, and to remain here where we are, to experience this. No, not even to experience it. Just be this. However, there are times when paying attention to the flavour of our thoughts in Zazen can be helpful. One is at times when we are particularly distracted and finding it hard to settle on our breath or koan. Not to dig more deeply, but to notice the general mood. For example, we may be feeling anxious about an upcoming event which is distracting us, and acknowledging that even making a note to attend to that later can help us to let go of it for a while. The other time is if we have some kind of significant problem that is causing us distress. We do not need, while doing zazen, to do anything about it. But we can be with it and pay attention. Feel the sadness. Feel the shame. Feel the anger or whatever emotion arises. Notice it and name it. How does it feel? Where do you feel it? Accept it. Include it in the way you include humming of the fridge or the breeze on your face. In other words, don't use Zen as a way to dissociate, to blank out your feelings. This brings me to why we practice. We don't practice to realise what we could realise by thinking or reading a book or asking someone. We do Zazen to realize what is inchoate in us. We do Zazen to realize who we really are when we stop thinking in our usual word-bound, culture-bound ways. Which is a problem because we struggle to talk about what cannot be spoken, to understand what cannot be understood to see with our ears and to listen with our eyes. And this is why no matter how diligently we try to figure out our true nature by being good or kind or generous or however we think we would behave if we knew our true nature, we have to take the step of letting go of ourselves, the selves we habitually construct and maintain so diligently. We all know this, and yet we can't will ourselves to realise our true nature. We can only open to it happening by jettisoning what usually fills our thoughts and attention. 
risking everything, letting it all go. But coming back to Gui Shan and the question about self-cultivation, which self is being cultivated? We tend to assume that self-cultivation is about me behaving better, about me and you abiding by the precepts and the great vows. But just for a minute, if this is not yet clear to you, imagine that none of us is a separate self, but just one big self along with the trees and grasses, stones and rivers, people and oxen and their attendant microorganisms. How would that affect what you understand by self-cultivation? How do you cultivate that self? Okay, now I, um, I had been reading when I was doing this um, Henry Shookman's book, One Blade of Grass. Um, and Henry Shookman's actually somebody who was trained in the uh, Sanbo, in Sanbo Zen, which is the sort of most recent iteration of the Sanbo Kyodan, which is Yamada Roshi's group, you know, through Yetsutani, and that the Diamond Sangha um, grew from. Um, and um, in his book, he's written about a few different um, openings or, or Kensho-type experiences. Um, actually, when we were in Japan, I mean, when people in Japan with Yamada Roshi and still in that tradition, if they have an opening experience of some sort, they sort of write an account of it and then it's sort of published and everybody has a ceremony and things like that. It's something we have completely abandoned in the West um, because... Um, yeah, we tend to sort of keep this fairly private. Um, but the reason I'm going to quote from his book is because, you know, not because his accounts are particularly special, but because they're written down and we have access to them. So I'm just going to... I'm sort of fiddling around because I've written... Oh, I'm putting together two talks. Okay, so... Um, when people have a glimpse, a little opening into the great matter, it's typically characterized by feelings of joy and an absence of self. So, um, here's one. Um, I remembered the question George had posed and poured myself into it, heart and soul. Who am I? Who really am I? It worked a little. It temporarily distracted me from knee pain. That's the knee pain he's grumbled about in the preceding paragraph. Then another deep gust travelled slowly through the pines across the meadow. It caught my attention. It was fascinating. And suddenly something happened. The knee pain was still there. The sound of the wind was still there. But there was no one experiencing them. It was the strangest thing. There was no me. The very center of my being, the core of my life, vanished. I vanished. Where had I gone? What had happened to me? Where I used to be, there was just a broad openness, 
All things were happening as before. Nothing had really changed. Yet everything had changed, because there was no me to whom everything was happening. It was as if a flashbulb had gone off in my skull, and that's what it suddenly illuminated. The idea of me had just been that, an idea. Now it had burst like a bubble. The relief was indescribable. All the worrying, all the fretting, and all along there'd been no one home. Life was a ship, and I'd assumed it had a captain, but the ship had no captain, there was no one on board. I had found the answer to the teacher's question, who was I? I was no one, I had made myself up. There was a bursting of joy. It was glorious to be seated outside on the grass now, to be hearing the wind and experiencing the sensation in the knees, which a moment ago had seemed unbearable, but now was just an interesting tingle, one of the many stimuli and impulses that arose in a limitless field of awareness. It was suddenly clear that all my life I'd been assuming these many stimuli happened to a being called me. They were connected to one another by virtue of happening to me, but there was no thread connecting them. Each arose independently. They were free. Not only that, but without me there was no past or future. Every phenomenon that arose was happening for the first and only time and filled all awareness entirely. That made it an absolute treasure. The rest of that day, I was in bliss. So, I just read that because it just gives a little... I mean, all experiences are very different from each other, but um, I just wanted to say that you know, if you're lucky enough to interact with someone who's recently had some sort of an opening experience you can sense it the love, the joy the wonder of course this experience itself doesn't last nothing lasts though it can resonate endlessly people fortunately do not walk around in a state of enraptured bliss evermore as you've no doubt noticed this is why even a recognised opening experience is not regarded as the end point of practice, but as a step on a path of ongoing, diligent practice. The reason I'm talking about it is because it gives a hint as to why we don't talk about love very much in Zen. It's because we don't talk much about awakening to our true nature. It's not something to talk about. It's something to embody. It's something to do. And even if we've not yet experienced anything quite like that particular experience described there, um, we've likely had some occasion when even fleetingly we have felt sheer joy and love. Love for everything. For life. For the blue sky for the twittering bird, the joy of being, the wind. Oh. Ding, ding. Because even if we do not yet know it, we are already completely embodying our own true nature.
There's a koan in the Denkoraku, the transmission of the light, which speaks to this, the completeness of it, the lack of separation and love. Tongan Guanji came to see Tongan Daopi and said, An ancient master said, I do not love what worldly people love. I wonder, what does your reverence love? Daopi replied, I'm already become like this. Perhaps we expected that what Dao Pi would love would be something else, otherworldly, special, different from the things ordinary mortals claim to love. But no, this is not about becoming better, getting something better, something extraordinary. Rather, it's about realizing that this very place is fine, just as it is. And we already whether we know it or not, in this very place, this very body, become like this. So, where do we go from here? I already said that it's not about each of us becoming better through a re regime of self-improvement, which we imagine will make us feel we have improved. It's about us opening more and more to actually being here. Not thinking about it. Being here and doing it. Realizing it. Making it real. We tend to practice, if we practice at all, sitting on a cushion. It is, of course, possible to sit on the cushion and not practice at all, too. Just sit there and plan your next holiday or rerun some old argument in your mind. But if you do that, as Aitken Roshi used to say, you'd be better off just going and practicing your golf swing. But here, in everyday Zen, we are all about expanding the reach of our practice, bringing the same mindful awareness we bring to our practice on the cushion to our other activities. A classic example of how we can practice this is, say, to decide to do something like wash the dishes or feed the dog with the same careful moment-to-moment -moment awareness as we bring to following the breath, to our koan, or just sitting. It's very easy, of course, to multitask, to go into automatic pilot while washing the dishes, while at the same time we plan dinner or how to save the world. And it's okay to do that, too but sometimes just don't. <laughs> but maybe we can go even further than that in cultivating the sense. What would it mean to cultivate the whole self, not just this little imaginary self I think I am? Would it make a difference? Thich Nhat Hanh's love meditation is an example of a practice that encourages us to cultivate a bigger self. This is not to say that doing tasks mindfully isn't in itself a way of caring for more than our small selves, but this is the only meditation I know that invites us to really understand the person we want to include in our love. And I think you've all had a chance now to sort of have a good read of that Thich Nhat Hanh love meditation. And you have no doubt seen that there are lines like, may I be able to recognize and touch 
the seeds of joy and happiness in myself. And then may I be able to recognize and touch the seeds of joy and happiness in her or him, them. So we're not saying may she be able to recognize and touch the seeds of joy in herself. It's may I be able to recognize and touch the seeds of joy and happiness in her. Um, and the pattern continues with the other side of things. May I learn to identify and see the sources of anger, craving and delusion in myself. And then may I learn to identify and see the sources of anger, craving and delusion in him or her. So in each case, we are invited to help ourselves to take action, to help foster joy and, and not foster discontent in ourselves, and then take that action in relation to others. Not to tell them to do it, but for us to find skillful ways to respond to them, or perhaps just to be with them and give them attention. In other words, this doesn't mean that we should rush around telling people, hey, I've just worked out why you get so angry, or why you crave a cigarette, or whatever. We are not judging other people. We are just doing things that are, help us to understand others better. And this brings to mind Thich Nhat Hanh's poem, Call Me By My True Names. Um, I suspect that most of you know this poem, do you? Is there anyone who doesn't know it? Ah, okay. Well, I'll just... Call, this poem, Call Me By My True Names, was written by Thich Nhat Hanh at the, you know, at the height of the... Um, well, uh, uh, towards the end, actually, of the, of the war, uh, Vietnam War, but... You know, he says, don't say that I'll depart tomorrow. Even today I'm still arriving. Look deeply. Every second I'm arriving to be a bud on a spring branch, to be a tiny bird with still fragile wings, learning to sing in my new nest, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding itself in a stone. And then... I still arrive in order to laugh and to cry, to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that is alive. Look around you now. Thich Han hasn't gone anywhere. I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river. I am the bird and that swoops down to swallow the mayfly. And it continues like this until it comes to a verse that says, I am the 12-year-old girl refugee on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. And then, you know, my joy is like spring, so warm it makes flowers bloom all over the earth. My pain is like a river of tears, so vast it fills the four oceans. 
Please call me by my true name so I can hear all my cries and my laughter at once. So I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true names so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open. The door of compassion. Now that verse about the 12-year-old girl refugee on a small boat and the pirate uh, being raped by the sea pirate. Um, and Thich Han says that he is the girl and the pirate. And I think when I first heard this poem decades ago now, I sort of understood that we were meant to feel compassion for everyone, but a pedophile rapist? Yes, it seems virtuous, and yet... Hmm. Thich Nhat Hanh wrote about this later. He said, after the Vietnam War, many people wrote to us in Plum Village, and they had letters, hundreds of letters each week from people in refugee camps all over the world. Um, and, you know, um, they wanted to be in contact. And one day, he said, we received a letter telling us about a young girl on a small boat who was raped by a Thai pirate. She was only 12, and she, and this is Thich Nhat Hanh's words now, she was only 12 and she jumped into the ocean and drowned herself. When you first learn of something like that, you get angry at the pirate. You naturally take the side of the girl. As you look more deeply, you will see it differently. If you take the side of the little girl, then it's easy. You only have to take a gun and shoot the pirate. But we can't do that. In my meditation, I saw that if I had been born in the village of the pirate and raised in the same conditions as he was, I would now be the pirate there is a great likelihood that I would become a pirate. I can't condemn myself so easily. In my meditation, I saw that many babies are born along the Gulf of Siam, hundreds every day. And if we educators, social workers, politicians and others do not do something about the situation, in 25 years a number of them will become sea pirates. That is certain. If you or I were born today in those fishing villages, we might become sea pirates in 25 years. If you take a gun and shoot the pirate, you shoot all of us, because all of us are to some extent responsible for this state of affairs. And he continues, After a long meditation, I wrote this poem. In it there are three people, the 12-year-old girl, the pirate, and me. Can we look at each other and recognise ourselves in each other? The title of the poem is Please Call Me By My True Names because I have so many names. When I hear one of those names, I have to say yes. So I think that this is an example of what Thich Nhat Hanh is talking about when he says May I learn to identify and see the sources of anger, craving, 
and delusion in him. He sees that the pirate is as he is because he recognizes the causes and conditions that led to the pirate becoming a pirate. Because of this, he can recognize himself in others. I know that many of you know all this. Most of us learn to recognize that people who behave badly by our standards often had earlier experiences that led to that behavior, trauma of some kind. But I think it's helpful to be explicit about why Tai created this love meditation as he did. He's encouraging us to understand why someone's behavior may be as it is and how that pirate, that politician, that junkie might have been me, might have been you, if the circumstances that have conditioned our lives, ourselves, had been different. But more than that, he is inviting us to go even further. He is inviting us to love everyone, including those who have been damaged and broken. Thank you for your attention.